The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Take out a sheet of paper. We're going to have a pop quiz. It'll be multiple choice. No. I love the book of Joel because it is the gospel story that is unfolded throughout God's, really the entirety of God's plan of redemption from even fall and sin as it was mentioned and the consequence of sin upon humanity, the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in us to the promise of redemption, of restoration to all who repent, to all who turn to the Lord and in that future picture of the day of the Lord that is a word or a phrase that we will see often in the book of Joel and when you hear that phrase, day of the Lord you need to think of that era in which God will manifest himself in a powerful way And he'll do so through the redemption of his people, through the judgment of the wicked, and through the restoration of creation, as it was mentioned there at the end of Joel. Uh, The day of the Lord, it it represents that time frame where God will judge the wicked, wicked and establish true righteousness, where God will sanctify his people and and make them right and give them even that new heart and that spirit that will be within them. And then even creation itself will be made new, will will be eradicated of all the consequences of sin that has come upon it. And so there's little pictures of the day of the Lord that come throughout the Bible, which I would even believe Joel Joel being written so early on, as you saw there even at the end, he said Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah um, that, that he that Joel borrowed from their passages and quoted. I would say the opposite is true, that Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah picked up on this earlier writing of Joel, and they incorporated by the Spirit, of course, inspiring and working through what they were writing. These elements, these themes, of course, play out in more full in a more full way in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. If you've already looked to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, will be upcoming. But the day of the Lord, uh, it came in a part even through Babylon's judgment, where God's bringing judgment. There was a picture of it there. There's a picture of it even in Christ's coming and in the church where we are now. But the fullness of the day of the Lord is yet to come. When God, um, I believe there will be a picture in the millennial kingdom of it, but it will finally come in that new heaven and that new earth that is yet to come upon the second return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's an overarching, just overarching narrative view of, of the book of Joel. I hope that's helpful, but I want us to kind of dive in now to the trees. We've seen the forest. Let's dive into the trees and look at the first chapter this evening for the remainder of the time we've got together. Let's go ahead and read through it. Joel chapter 1, and we'll read through the chapter and then walk back through it this evening. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And we have no idea who that is, nor who Joel is. No, again, historical context to place them in a certain era. But we do know what God has said. This is God's word that came upon this man. Uh, What is written has been written under the authority of God who spoke in time past through the prophets. And so God has written what we read, even though we may say Joel wrote these words. Verse 2, Hear this, he says, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? Or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. 
what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust eats, uh, has eaten, and what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. A very poetic way of saying, these locusts have, have devoured everything. <laughs> Awake, you drunkards, verse 5, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth, for a nation shall come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. All of this poetic imagery, description of the locusts that have come in and totally demolished the land. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns. The grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished, The vine has dried up and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you ministers, before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clod. Storehouses are in shambles. Banks I'm sorry, barns are broken down, for the grain has withered. How the animals groan, the herds of cattle are restless, because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out. For fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up. And fire has devoured the open pastures. I want us to consider three, three just general truths about God and suffering. Three truths that apply to us, even as we consider these words of God through the prophet Joel, written directly for that day and age and the event that was happening then and there with these this swarm of locusts that came into Israel, ransacked the land, ate everything to the point of people were starving to death, animals were starving to death because there was no food to be had, a great time of famine, a great time of grief. And yet, Joel makes clear that this great time of grief was meant to point us to a greater spiritual brokenness, a greater spiritual truth that we were to come to, that even tonight as we think about suffering at large within life, uh, just generally in this world, 
and especially as we think about sufferings in our own life that are personal, um, these truths are true for us. And the purpose of suffering in, in a fallen world, why would God permit such things? Notice firstly in verses 1 through 7, the sufferings of this life are meant to awaken us to the sinfulness of our sin. That's one of the purposes of suffering, and I'd really say that may be one of the largest purposes of suffering in, in a fallen, broken world in which we live. That suffering exists, and the pains of this life are, are, are painful, in order that we may be awakened to the sinfulness of sin, especially the sinfulness of our own personal sin. What happened in this day and age to Israel was a bit abnormal. It wasn't every day that a, a, a large swarm of locusts would come in and to totally demolish the land. This was something that, that shook every person to the core. I could just think of even all the, the, the prayer requests being made for Haiti. And, and even though that place has been such a place of, of hardship and difficulty for so long, where it is at right now is even in a greater to a greater degree in a place where, where people, their lives are being flipped upside down, and people are being shaken to the core in their daily living, in the abnormality of the suffering that had come has come upon them, and to compare that even to that day and age in the context of what's going on in the nation of Israel, the, the people were starving to death, the animals were starving to death, there was a large swarm of locusts that, that even combated that of the, the plague of, of Egypt, that, that Demolished everything, even in today in our day and time, in the weirdness of events that can happen with a, a swarm of locusts going through countries, it's hard to, to combat that. It's hard for a nation to, to make it through that, even in our day and age, with all the advancement in technology, technologies that we have. In that day and age, uh, th- this meant death for many. Uh, this meant extreme hardship beyond what any of us can even comprehend in the comforts of what we live in. This totally shook up daily life, completely flipped everyone's life upside down. It broke into the routineness of their daily living. And it really showed everyone just how fragile their lives really are. Sufferings in this life, even as we... We can, in a way, think of this as a natural disaster that occurred in Israel, even though by God's inspired word we see His divine hand over it. You know, He brought these locusts upon His people because of their waywardness, because of their sin. But, but I believe it is right to read into this even a, an application to just general, general suffering within creation like natural disasters that happen. And, and we often ask, where is God in the midst of this? What, what is God doing? Why did God allow that? And people want to accuse God and and question what in the world, how can a loving God who is all-powerful permit such things to happen in this life? And we look to God's Word and we realize not all suffering is a result of specific sin. Not all suffering is a result of specific sin. And so there are some sufferings that God may bring upon a person because of a specific sin in their life that God is seeking to break into their life to reveal to them the sinfulness of their sin, to awaken them from their their spiritual sleep, so to speak, the hardness of their heart. God can and God does bring 
specific sufferings upon us because of our waywardness. And, and in a large way, that is what's happening here um, to the people of God. But in another sense, I would imagine not everyone enduring this plague had a hardness of heart towards the Lord. There were some who were faithful to the Lord, who were undoubtedly experiencing the same sufferings here as the people who were hard of heart and embracing idolatry and, and immorality. So not all sufferings are a result of specific sin. And in our day and age, it's quite presumptuous for us to look at a a natural disaster that occurs and make a proclamation. God's bringing judgment upon them because of and naming a specific sin. There are some preachers who, when natural disasters have struck, uh, they want to call out specific sins. I doubt God spoke to them as He spoke to Joel. Maybe. And that's God's prerogative. But most can be very presumptuous by even generally making accusations of countries and broken or, or, or earthquakes of Haiti, for goodness sake. That comes to mind years ago where, forget who it was, but somebody called them out because of the voodoo in the country and the witchcraft in the country. And God brought that earthquake on them because of that. In a way, yes, but not, I, I don't think we can say with authority, unless God has spoken it to us and revealed that, that that specific sin resulted in this specific judgment of an earthquake coming upon Haiti so many years ago, a few, few years back. God doesn't give that special revelation to us as He does to His prophets as He spoke to them in time past. God does, however, give us a general understanding of suffering and a general understanding of the waywardness of our hearts and the, the brokenness of this life where this point that I'm making can be proven true in God's Word over and over and over again that all the sufferings of this life That suffering itself has been given as a consequence of sin in order that God may awaken us from the routine daily life that we live, thinking that we can control everything, thinking that we can make our life secure, thinking that we can make ourselves happy and healthy for all eternity. God breaks into that with suffering to, to shake us from the daily routine of life to hopefully awaken our eyes to see this world is not what it ought to be. This world is broken. And this world is messed up. And the the brokenness of the world around us ought to point to uh, even a a realization of even our own hearts and our own lives that we are a broken people living in the midst of a, a broken world. The sufferings of this life are meant to awaken us to the reality of our own sinfulness. And so after the first four verses of describing the severity of this suffering that has come upon the people through this swarm of locusts and what is done to the land, verse 5, he says, Awake! Awake! Wake up! God is shouting to you in the suffering of your life. Wake up and realize you, you are not in your waywardness able to control your life in the here and now as if you could do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, and everything's going to be great. Now, all the sufferings of this life are meant to point to just how brief life is and how fragile it is and how broken it is and how broken we are and, and lead us to an awakening. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine. And the, the thing that was going to break into their heart and to their life was the new wine's been cut off. A nation's come up against you. This swarm of, of, of locusts that are demolishing 
everything and stripped everything down. Lament, he says, verse 8, like a virgin girded with sackcloth. The suffering that they were enduring was meant to shake the routine, self-controlled day of daily life that they were living in a way that made them wake up to just how broken they were and how broken life is and how much they need the Lord that they had long forgotten. All the sufferings of our life do that in a large degree. I think of September 11th in our country. You know, many of you remember that day well. And you can think of just a short-lived period after that moment of great suffering that it was okay to say, let's pray for one another. And there was a great uh, focus, at least, of an acceptance of turning to the Lord and and turning with our sorrow and grief to the Lord. It was short-lived and has now been long forgotten. But but even in that suffering, we saw a a, a small awakening. You know, I think back to 2004, and many of you remember the tsunami that you realize that killed 230,000 people over in Indonesia and other countries that are surrounding that area. The earthquake there in the ocean that caused a tsunami that was uh, over 100 foot tall that that came in and killed that many people. And people ask, you know, where is God? In the midst of that, why would God let that happen? It's a question I've been asked even when it comes to smaller sufferings in our in a, in a person's life. Like, where is God in the midst of this? Why would God let that happen? And many people have long thought and answered that question in a variety of ways. You know, is God is God weak? Some just view that He's He's not able to prevent it. That some would say, well, He's given free will and. Because he's given free will, he's kind of tied his hands and he can't, he can't do it. He, he can't intervene to prevent such a thing anymore. And that, that's not what our Bible says of God's sovereignty over creation, even in its fallen nature. And our God is a sovereign God. He's perfectly powerful enough to do whatsoever he chooses or wills. Is God just malevolent? Is he evil? Is he just distant and unconcerned and laughing at the sufferings of our life. No, that's not what the Bible says of God who is loving and gracious and merciful and delights in the redemption of, of sinners. It's not that He's not loving. It's, it's not that He is weak. He is all-powerful. So, so why would a loving, all-powerful God permit such things as a tsunami like that in 2004 to occur? I think the best answer I can give to you tonight reflection of even what Joel is writing here is that sometimes God lets things like that happen just to show us, to awaken us to how broken this world is because of our sin. It really is why He permits such tragedies like that to occur. Even as it grieves, I I believe fully, it grieves His heart when things like that do occur, but, but He permits it in order that we might be uh, awakened, that we might come to just an understanding of, of really how how broken and messed up this world is because of how broken and messed up we are. That God does let things like that happen, even in our own lives personally. Um, not in a laughing, malevolent, mean way, but even out of His tender graces and mercies to lead us to repentance, to lead us to an awakening where we realize 
this world isn't what we're living for. This world isn't all that it is cut out to be. It's not all that the culture around us wants to, to make it out to be. This world is, is wicked and broken and under the curse of sin. And it is under that because of us, because of our hearts, because of who we are, because of the waywardness of our own actions and our own thoughts and our own being. And it ought to lead us to a place of seeing the sinfulness of our sin. All the sufferings of our lives are in one way meant to lead us to that, to realize I am a sinner in need of salvation. I am a broken person in need of healing, in need of restoration. And therefore, the second point I want us to see, verses 8 through 18, is that just as our suffering leads us to lament, makes us lament rightly when we endure sufferings in this life physically, so should our sins. That's the big point Joel is making to the people of God here. That he's saying, you are miserable under the sufferings of this famine that we're going through right now. It's something that's like never happened before to this degree. Something to write down and tell your children and your children's children about it. And realize the, the grief and the mourning and the sorrow of the sufferings of this moment really ought to point us to the, the same reaction to the sorrow and grief and lamenting and mourning of our waywardness from God of our own sin before God. And that is what Joel is pointing the people of God here to. He's saying, this sufferings come upon you in order that you may be awakened to the sinfulness of your sin and that God may work through that to bring you to a lamenting over your sin that is just as powerful as the lamenting you have over the situation of suffering you're going through physically through this famine that you are enduring. So in verse 8, he says, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. So, so one whose husband died at an early age and the, the grief and sorrow that would be upon this woman's heart. He says the grain and the, uh, the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. Therefore, priests, you need to mourn. Those who minister to the Lord ought to be mourning over the waywardness of the people of God. Verse 11, be ashamed, wail, keep going. And you see verse 13, gird yourselves and lament, you priest, wail, you minister before, uh, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth. Why? For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of God. Verse 14, they were to consecrate a fast. Declare this fast before the people. Call the people together. Assemble in the, the sacred assembly. Gather the elders, the leaders of the community, all the inhabitants of the land and the house of the Lord, and cry out to the Lord, not merely because of the physical suffering. Yes, the physical suffering directs our hearts to God as we, we seek the comfort physically, but that points to the greater spiritual reality. That their hearts were broken before God. Their hearts were sinful before God and wayward. And they needed to consecrate this fast in turn and, and call out to the Lord to direct their attention and their, their, their cry of their, their misery even in suffering and lament unto God Himself instead of to themselves as they had been doing daily in their lives in their self-sufficiency, justifying their wickedness day in and day out. Suffering has a way of putting us flat on our back before the Lord. 
And it ought to awaken us. And it ought to lead us to lament over our brokenness, over our waywardness before the Lord. And then notice lastly, thirdly, verses 19 and 20. That the call of repentance, the call to cry out to the Lord, it begins with you individually and you personally. We all could say it begins with me. Because oh, how we love to talk about you. (laughs) And your need to repent. And your need to repent. Definitely your need to repent. And everybody else's need to repent. The culture around us and their sin and their brokenness and the way our nation needs to, you know, bow before the Lord and seek the forgiveness of the... It begins here. Always begins here. And, and Joel makes this point clear. Where after he gives this word of God to the people to repent, to assemble together and have this fast before the Lord and cry out to the Lord... He says in verse 19, O Lord, to You I cry out. He personally begins with Him as the leader declaring this message. He personally turns in repentance to the Lord. He personally turns it all over to God. And he he cries out to God for the sufferings that were going on all around Him. For the state of devastation that the people of God were in because of this suffering that had come upon him. Joel is the one giving this call to repentance, was the first to take heed to it. He is the one who set the example by calling out to God first for help. It reminds me of Isaiah even that we just walked through. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and, and, and the whole call of Isaiah began first with Isaiah's p- p- uh, confession, I am a sinful man. I'm a a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And God took that hot coal and cleansed him first before he then could bring that message to the people of God. It started with him first understanding his need for the Lord. And it's a great application for you and me tonight. As much as I could stand up here on a soapbox and harp about how bad the culture around us has gotten and the waywardness of this group and that group and their hard-heartedness and their, you know, you know the soapbox that so many stand up on and speak that and preach that day in and day out every Sunday and every Wednesday night, and yet they never turn inward. And they never realize, no, I am a sinner. And I am broken. And I need salvation. I need redemption. I need to confess my waywardness before the Lord. I need to cry out to Him. And they never have the humbleness of spirit that comes through that to confront the waywardness around them because it first begins here. It first begins here even tonight. And your heart and my heart, a call of repentance begins with us. I want to, we need to close for sake of time, but turn to chapter 2 and verse 12. Chapter 2, really verse 13, I would say, is the theme verse of the book of Joel. If you want to underline a verse and highlight it as you think of the book of Joel, what ought to come to mind is verse 13. Uh, we'll, we'll probably close with this verse every message we preach through the book of Joel. Verse 12, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And He relents from doing 
harm. But our God is a God who delights in the forgiveness of sinners. He, he takes pleasure when the wicked repent and they turn. He does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. But when the wicked return, when they find salvation, when they find that He is a gracious and merciful God, and so the call upon humanity from the very beginning is turn from your sin and find my grace and mercy. Repent with a broken and a contrite heart and find that God is not a God who squishes you in your humble brokenness. He's a God who forgives and redeems and restores and and shows off just how merciful and gracious He is. He delights in that. He's slow to anger and He's of great kindness. That is the end to which Joel is hoping to lead the people of God in this book. And it's the end to which I hope to lead us every night we examine this book. And honestly, every time we preach from the entirety of Scripture, this is the end that we come to, that God is gracious and merciful and He's calling out to you, even tonight, sinner, in your sin and even under the sufferings that you may be walking through. God is using that to awaken your heart to the reality of the sinfulness that you have in your life to lead you to a place of lamenting that sin and turning to God, crying out to Him, and finding He's a God who saves. Finding He's a God who redeems. He's a God who heals the broken. He's a God who gives eternal life to us. He's a God who promises someday He will make all things new in that new heaven and new earth that is to come. And so as you think tonight personally, about your own suffering. I hope it points you to your own sin. And as you think about your own sin, you would obey this admonition that's given here through Joel and even repeated in the Gospel. Repent and believe. We've got a much fuller picture of God's plan of redemption because we know Jesus came to die upon a cross to accomplish this redemption. He shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins that we may be made right before God. If you've never come to a a lamenting of your sin and never turned to God and cried out to Him, said, God, save me. I beg you tonight as we close in prayer, as we have a song of invitation, would you do that? Don't, Don't rend your clothes. I'm not asking for a come to the altar and make a scene. We've got a lot of rending of clothes. But to rend your heart, your heart turn to the Lord and repent. Call out to Him for help, for salvation, for healing. Heavenly Father, we come to You, Lord, and we thank You for Your Word. A book of Joel written so many years ago, yet so true, so powerful, so applicable to us even tonight. Lord, Your Word is inspired. Your Word is infallible. Your Word still speaks to us through Your Spirit even now. And so I pray You take Your Word and Encourage those who are going through suffering to have a strength and an endurance to know You're at work in it to make them more like Jesus. Lord, for any that may not know Christ and that's going through suffering, I pray in the in the grief of their suffering and the pain of their suffering, they would come to see this world isn't all that it's cut out to be. This world isn't the end. That the brokenness of this life is meant to awaken us to the brokenness of our hearts and our need for You, our need for redemption, our need for salvation. And may tonight they come and turn and find uh, that You're a God who can heal, a God who forgives, a God who redeems, a God who restores. Lord, work, I pray. Save the lost. Sanctify Your, your body, Your believers. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.